Welcome to Falling in Love with God's Word with Jill Grossman. Hi, I'm Jill. I'm glad you're taking the time to grow in your understanding of God's Holy Word. I invite you to visit JillGrossman.com. There you'll find additional resources to help you fall in love with God's Word even more, such as books, speaking topics, and workshops. Now, let's get started with today's lesson. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this lecture. I thank you for the important lesson of Daniel and the lion's den. And um, just be with me now, Lord, and move what's aside, what's not important to just fall away, but what is important stays and takes root. That is my heart's cry. So we lift this up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so outside of Noah's Ark, that story, Noah and the Ark, uh, this is probably the, most other, the other most popular story of the Bible. Daniel and the lion's den. Even if you're not a believer, you know about Noah's Ark, and you know about this guy named Daniel in the lion's den. Commentator Ronald Wallace put it this way. He starts off putting it this way, and then he adds uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He says, Empires rise and kings come and go. Fashions and lifestyles change. But the one stable thing in the midst of it all is what he says in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you... O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We can learn a lot from Daniel and his character in this lesson. He emulated what Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 7. When I read this, I want you to think about Daniel and how he was. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. Chuck Swindoll said, said it best, The soundness, the integrity of our faith and character is what will keep us standing in the midst of life's storms, just like it did for Daniel. Now, I don't know about you, but I have gotten a lot out of the, these, these chapters and Daniel and his character, and that has helped me with some challenges that have come my way recently. Um, the political situation, let's talk about that, with Darius as king. In the past, Babylonian kings ruled with abs- as absolute monarchs. Everything ran through them, everything. The Persian rulers... They like to delegate responsibilities, you see. So we find that in verse 1 because it said, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Now the word satrap comes from an old Persian word that meant protector of the kingdom. Or more specifically, it meant a provincial governor. Now can you imagine trying to oversee 120 governors? Um, one person couldn't possibly keep track of them all. Now, as it is, the easiest way we can relate to it is the United States. The president oversees, in some ways, um, the governors. But that's only 50 of them. So, realizing this, Darius put a system in place by appointing three commissioners over them so the satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss because of the corruption, as it says in verses 1 and 2. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them, 
so that the king might not suffer loss. This obviously became the way of the Persian government. In the book of Esther, which happens many, many years later, it mentions 127 provinces. It starts, Esther starts off with, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So it's, it's a reasonable system and the satraps had a mission in their work and they would also be held accountable to the king. So you had the satraps and they were overseen by the commissioners and the commissioners are the ones that made the rules for the satraps but then if something went bad the commissioners are the one that answered to the king. So they had so that middle management, so to speak, had a lot of um, responsibility. And this puts them in charge of approximately 42, 42.3 to be exact, but 42 provinces. So that's less than what the president of the United States oversees as far as governors, but it's still a lot. Um, so there was a lot of work to do, but it was manageable. So before we go any further, let's talk about the word Darius because it goes back and forth. Last week I mentioned that King Cyrus captured Babylon. After digging some, I believe I'm a little off on this now. I did get a little confused, but let's, I think I can explain this now. So there is a lot of discrepancy about this word and about who this Darius was. But after further study, it seems that Darius the Mede, which is mentioned, last, is mentioned in chapter 5, was an alternate name of one of Cyrus's trusted lieutenants. Remember when I told you that Darius had a very smart commander named Ugbaru, and he's the one that took the Euphrates River. That's how they captured Babylon. That hadn't been, that hadn't been, no one could penetrate their walls for over a thousand years. But they lowered the Euphrates River and the water system, basically, and the, and the, the soldiers came through the water system. That was uh, Ugbaru, who was the one that mastermind behind that. But on ancient documents, he's known as Gubaru. We're pretty sure that's a transcription error. And according to ancient Babylonian inscriptions, Cyrus made Gubaru, or Yugbaru, governor over Babylon after he conquered it. So if we jump ahead a bit to chapter 9, verse 1, scripture says that Darius was made ruler over Babylon, where we might have expected the words he became ruler if he conquered it as a king. So I thought that was an interesting point to make. So go, continuing on, now without going any further and drawing out a huge detail, the short story is Darius was a title. There were other Persian rulers that used the same term, Darius, that's documented after Cyrus, the king. Darius I came as Cyrus's reign was over. There is an argument about the thought that Darius was King Cyrus, but according to the Nabonidus Chronicles, remember I showed you those last week, Cyrus came two weeks after the fall of Babylon. And so they, can, they cannot be the same man. However, Gabaru was a commander over Babylon and placed in that role by King Cyrus. Then Cyrus came later, and this is the story about Daniel and King Cyrus's relationship, although they refer to him as, Sarah, as Darius. It's a title similar to Pharaoh in Egypt, many pharaohs. That's kind of it in a nutshell. I'm just scratching the surface. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that according to secular records, there is no mention of Darius the Mede. So some scholars argue that the book of Daniel is not credible for its historical components so that it, they could also discredit the prophetic 
components that are involved in this book. However, if you look at the similarities in the names, Ugbaru, Gubaru, um, and all the things that they're finding out in these chronicles, it, logic says it's the same person. But the unbelievers will focus, will major on that minor of saying, well, it can't be because it's this and this and this, but the story's the same, the setting's the same, but that's, that's therein to, that, to discredit the book of Daniel. Regardless of what we do know from, uh, regardless, we do know, we do know this from biblical and historical documents that when Babylon was captured, Media and Persia were separate kingdoms. But approximately two and a half years later, the kingdoms came together. So when anytime you see the map or you look this up around this timeline, you'll see Medo-Persia Empire. Right, so it's Median was, a, was an empire and Persia was an empire. And they were peaceful. And, the reason, and then the, they became one empire. And the reason is because King Cyrus, um, he was uh, married the last median king's daughter and the and the king gave the daughters the dowry was the median kingdom so they all came together so the reason i'm bringing this up this might explain the statue because in the dream nebuchadnezzar's dream was a chest and two arms of silver so one can represent the persian kingdom one is the media kingdom and then the two coming together is the chest just pointing that out there. Okay, so let's move on. It might seem strange that Daniel is now in his 80s and connected with the previous Babylonian government and is being connected with that. And then, of course, they capture him. Why are they giving him this, this elated position or lift-up position? It was known when Persian rulers would conquer an empire or conquer an area, they would use the existing officials rather than executing them. They'd use them for their expertise. And some of the other court members may have informed Darius of what happened with the whole handwriting on the wall thing and Daniel's play in that. Oh, this sounds like a wise man. Hmm, this sounds like a fair man. And, of course, if they talked to him, they could tell he was a fair man, so they would um, move him to a better position. Daniel begins to serve in this position because of his talents, his experience, and his integrity. They're just so apparent. But that shouldn't surprise us because now Daniel... Uh, distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king had planned to set over him and the whole kingdom. Again, there's just favor in his life. And again, I want to remind you, I've brought it up a couple of times. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies at peace with him. That's what's happening here constantly. So what makes him so extraordinary? Let's go back to chapter 1. It gives us a clue. Daniel 1.17 says, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So not only was Daniel hardwired for this, but God also added a special anointing upon him that, fa- that everybody found favor with him. Another reminder is that God is in control of it all. We have to always remember, these are just parts in the play, but God's the director and producer. Um, and I want to remember that I want us to remember last week when we talked about uh, when the queen walked in, uh, Belshazzar's mom, and she walked in and she's saying, look, why don't we call the guy Daniel? She says, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. 
So the integrity just follows this man. Daniel knew that the Lord was sovereign over all appointments and disappointments. So regardless of how high he climbed, how high he was appointed, God was in control. Because of this, he was secure in his God, and therefore he was secure in himself. This is a good reminder of what we should remember. Psalm 75, 7 says, It is God who judges. He brings one down and he exalts another. But God is in control. Sadly, we know that the others are threatened by Daniel and his impeccable character, and this provokes the other administrators to get him removed. They are all jealous of him because he is such a man of integrity. They probably are horrified that some old exile from a, that this old guy that's in his 80s, and he's an, he's an exile from that Israel land, and he's a Hebrew no less. I mean, everybody has a problem with them. And he was promoted above all of them. They had a real problem. They had a real problem with that. So um, they were bigoted. And these satraps uh, and commissioners got together, and they wanted to get rid of the threat, which was Daniel. And isn't this the theme of the Jewish people? That's exactly what happened in Genesis. Pharaoh was threatened by the number of Jewish people during Moses' time, so he set a decree to have all the male children two years and under killed to keep procreation happening more and and keep the numbers down. And then he put them in deeper slavery because he feared them. The Pharisees were threatened by Jesus because they feared him. The Arab nations of today are threatened by the Hebrews, and they want to annihilate them. This goes on and on throughout history. Verse 4 tells us uh, what they attempted to do. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. Oh, you can just hear the drippiness in their voice, right? All the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human um, being, uh, human being, during the next thirty days, except you, your Majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your Majesty, issue a decree and put it in writing so that. It cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be replaced. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So first they go to the king and they stroke his ego, you know. And this reminds me of that old child's child's tale of the king who wore no clothes. What's the name of that? um, The emperor's new clothes. That's exactly what, the, oh, king, you know, they just wanted to humiliate him, but they built up his ego. So he's thinking, well, don't I look fabulous? Well, my gosh, you have no clothes on. Um, and then they, but then they, not only do they build him up, but they're lying to the king. They're taking a chance, but they're, they, that's how unified they are. They're all lying to him, and they play to his ego and position and power. Well, what king of that day wouldn't have liked to rule the religious realm as well as the political? That was my point. All kings are political, and they you know, oversee all the workings of the kingdom, but to have the spiritual realm too. It's almost that godlike thing, you know? Um, that's, that's, a, that's a heavy ego trip. Uh, so he moved right into the manipulative hands. And Darius's ego was so pumped that he wasn't even thinking. He just got confused and got caught up in the moment and signed the decree. 
In Babylonian kingdom, the king had absolute authority. They could make the law and change their mind if they pleased, but not in Persian law. Once that decree was signed, it was irrevocable. Not even the king could change it. And that's why they did it that way. And what does Daniel do when he hears about the decree and that it's signed? He doesn't argue. He doesn't yell back. He doesn't retaliate. He goes to his room and prays. And it's not just a panic prayer. It's a, okay, I'm going to go pray. I don't know what else to do. I'm going to know what I know to do, and that's to pray. When Ezekiel was prophesying about Jerusalem and her coming judgment, God spoke to Ezekiel and said this in Ezekiel 14, 12 through 14. Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its people and their animals, even if these, men, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. Character counts. Character counts. Righteousness and, and, and how we seek the Lord counts in times of trouble. When everyone in the world seems to have turned against you and your colleagues at work have betrayed you, the answer is to fall on your knees before God and seek him in all things. That's what we need to learn from this. There once was a reporter interviewing an old man on his 100th birthday. What are you most proud of, the reporter asked. Well, said the man, I don't have an enemy in the world. What a beautiful thought. How inspirational, said the reporter. Yep, added the centurion. Outlived every last one of them. (laughs) Well, Daniel outlived his enemies too, but not because of his strength or his cunning, but because God's sovereign plan called for it. So let me ask you something. Do you trust God's plan for your life? I mean, really trust him? I'm challenged by that. I, I waver with that back and forth. But I ultimately want to get to that surrender. And, and like I said earlier, Daniel did not go to his quarters and do that last-minute panic prayer. Oh, gosh, oh, no. No, he was in the habit. He had developed that relationship with the Lord. And that's when we, if we want to hear from the Holy Spirit and we, want, and we want to know that prompting, we do that by building relationship and beginning to hear his voice. Sheep know the shepherd by their voice because they're with him all the time. That's, that's what we're, we're to develop. So in Daniel uh, verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, it says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had, and that's why I have that highlighted, just as he had done before. He was in the habit of doing this. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Everything about this verse tells us that Daniel regularly knelt down at his window and prayed, and everybody knew it. So why did he do this? Well, let me point you to 2 Chronicles 6, 34-39. It says, this was when Solomon set in motion after he built the temple to God. He said, when your people go to war against their enemies wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward this city... You have chosen, and the temple I have built for you, um, temple I had built for your name, 
Then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And Solomon is praying right now out loud with all the people are here in front of the temple. And then he goes on to say, And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear the prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. You know what's amazing about this is that he talks about when they, when they get taken into captivity. This was long before they got taken into captivity. Isn't that wild? So Daniel knew that the Lord had promised to return the captives and bring restoration to Jerusalem. He's holding on to them. This is where he's most obedient. And this is a symbolic way of life, and it still is. That's the wailing wall in Jerusalem. And you know what? It is ramped up. It is ramped up just recently because Jerusalem is now the capital of Israel. Restoration has begun in our lifetime, and these, these prayers are being answered. Daniel was obedient and is steadfast to God and his promise to Jerusalem and the captives. He never stopped being pure before God. Jeremiah the prophet said in 29.10, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then in 29.14 it says, I... I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. They're coming up on 70 years. Daniel knows we're right at that time frame, and he's remembering these prophecies, and he's remembering what Solomon had said to him. He's he's holding on to the promises of God obedience. Ah, this is a deja vu all over again. Didn't we see something really similar with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego about God's faithfulness? So this scenario is played out twice in this book. So this tells me if the Bible is truly the inspired word of God, then he wants us to learn something. What does he want us to learn? The people of God, which is us, will serve no God but himself. But God himself. And God is faithful. He answers prayers. The thing is, he doesn't wear a watch. (laughs) He doesn't follow our timeline. But he's faithful in prayers. He will answer. We know the king is in distress over this decree and he can't back out of it. And Daniel is being thrown into the lion. As he's being thrown into the lion's den, he says, May your God, whom you serve continually rescue you. So he must have seen Daniel constantly three times a day, change his schedule, stop what he's doing and go and pray to this wonderful God that wasn't a a wooden pole. I mean, you got to be thinking about what these, what these pagan people were thinking. Wow, this God must be really cool. Look at Daniel. Scripture says the king spent a sleepless night and went without eating. He was in anguish over this. So this brings to mind Whatever happened to the fiery furnace, the place of punishment and death? That was, that was the norm. Keep in mind, one pagan empire had been replaced by another pagan empire. So the Persians, the reason fire was not the form of punishment is because Persians worshipped fire as a part of their belief system. So they would never use fire as a punishment. But all pagan empires <clears throat> follow a common path of brutality. 
a comparison of fire. We have lions. And then we have crosses. Only serves to remind us the cruelty of man, of what we can do, what man can do to man. We know that Daniel survives and an angel closed, that an angel was close by him and closed the lion's mouth. It is possible, is it possible, that the same angel was with Daniel and his three friends in the furnace? Was that same angel Jesus? Was it Michael the archangel? Nonetheless, it was a divine figure that saved them. And, but if it was Jesus, can you imagine hanging with Jesus with all the kitties, <laughs> with all the purring kitties, sleeping kitties all night long, the conversations that were taking place that they had? Just like when God yanked the three friends from Nebuchadnezzar's fire, there was no smell, there was no smoke, there wasn't anything singed. It was a huge miracle. Well, the same is here. There was not one mark on Daniel, not one, not even saliva. When God delivers, he delivers it completely. So with that said, this is Horace Gray. Horace Gray was a Supreme Court justice in the early 1900s. He was once informed of a man who appeared before him in the lower court and had escaped conviction on a technicality. He says, I know that you are guilty and you know it, and you also know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. Surprised while burglaring a house in Antwerp, Belgium, The thief fled out the back door, climbed over a nine-foot wall, and dropped down the other side and found himself in the city prison. That's what happened to this guy. So justice prevails. Don't you love that story? Sooner or later, like I said, justice will prevail. So if not in this life, always in eternity. Always in eternity. God will have the last say on all of the injustice. The king is overjoyed and that Daniel is alive and he's not heard. But now the king knows that he's been deceived. And then he has his accusers thrown into the lion's den along with their families to be crushed and eaten as their judgment for placing the king in that dreadful dilemma. And let's remember that the lions didn't get to eat that night. So they were very hungry by the morning when this happened. And ironically, Steve was doing some reading and he goes, Jill, have you found this proverb? And I did not. This is the proverb. A king's wrath is like the roar of a lion. He who angers him forfeits his life. Boy, is that not a perfect proverb for this lesson, right? In, in the king's own words, at the end of the chapter, he exalts Daniel's God. He issues a new decree that in every part of the kingdom, the people must fear and have reverence for the God of Daniel. King Cyrus gives glory and praise and honor to the God in the last, of the last part of this chapter. And this story is famous for obvious reasons with the lions, but it, if we pause, we should also remember the focus on the character and the integrity of Daniel. He is faithful and consistent in his prayer life. And he lived, the, he lived in a very unstable and pagan world, and yet he was able to stand strong through them. God Is God calling us? I mean, we live in a very unstable world. What's God calling us to do? He's calling us to step up our prayer life. Author C. Neal Strait said, Prayer lifts the heart above the battles of life and gives it a glimpse of God's resources, which spell victory and hope. 
We can fine-tune our prayer life with six things. We can find a place of prayer. We can be persistent in our prayers. We can posture our prayers. We give praise in our prayers. Don't just go to God as the great ATM. He's the, you know, I, I, I give you thanks. Take time. Worship God. Praise Him. There's a pattern in our prayer. What is the pattern in our prayer? If we don't know how to pray, Jesus says, use the Lord's Prayer as a model. Um, there's purity in our prayer when we petition God for prayer. How are we praying? How are we, how are we entering the throne room of God? Remember, Daniel sought purity with God. A lot of times we only seek forgiveness, and there's a difference. Sometimes we take advantage of that. We allow ourselves to act badly because deep down inside, we know when we're ready, we're going to ask for forgiveness, and it's going to be given. But do we seek purity? I believe if we first seek to act pure, with, with pure motives, and we seek to change, and we seek to really think of that like that song, an audience of one, to live as if God is living for God, for his favor, then the forgiveness and all the other stuff comes. It comes almost as an after effect, but that should be our first motivating point. Daniel did not stop being who he was with God. Let's not change who we are to fit our circumstances. If you are with a group full of people and you want to give thanks for the food set before you and nobody else does, don't. If you don't want to make everybody, then don't. But don't you stop. Give thanks to the Lord. Um, if you don't want to behave badly or whatever your circumstances are, don't. I don't want to. I don't think that's right. That's sorry. That, do what you want to do. I'm not going to do that. Don't change your circumstances. Our friends will adjust if they, and if they don't, they weren't our friends and we need to get them out of our life anyway. So, we need to seek a relationship with God. Daniel was known for possessing the fruits of the Spirit before we knew what the fruits of the Spirit were. And they manifested through him because of, because of his relationship with God. That's what happens when we become more God-centered than me-centered. So this week, let's work at work, being more God-centered in our prayers than me-centered. Um, Let's strive to keep that in mind. And let's see what happens and talk about it when we come back next week. So would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, thank you for the courage and the faith of Daniel. May we strive to have a deeper relationship with you, and may our lives reflect the same kind of devotion to you, God, both privately and publicly, like it was with Daniel. In Jesus' name, amen. And then next week, we're going to get into the prophecies. I hope you enjoyed this week's lesson, and I encourage you to fall in love with God's Word.